Hello everyone, and if you'll give me just a moment, I have the great pleasure of recommending a tremendous and long-standing companion in history podcasting to you, Scott Chesworth and the Ancient World Podcast. Scott started around the same time as me in our slowly growing community of the time, and his was one of those that immediately stood out. He makes the subject as clear and complete as the sources allow, he's authoritative measured, and it's such a fascinating topic. So, I heartily recommend it to you, and here is Scott to tell you just a little more. Do you love Greek and Roman history, but also want to learn about all the ancient civilizations that came before them? Then The Ancient World is the podcast for you. You'll hear about the Sumerians, Akkadians, Babylonians, Assyrians, Hittites, and ancient Egyptians, right down through the Persians, Greeks, and Romans. You can find it all right here, and it's sometimes even funny. So check out the Ancient World Podcast wherever you get your pods or at ancientworldpodcast.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of England at a Gallop. 1629 to 1638, the personal rule. This episode covers the period dealt with in 11 episodes, 358 to 368. Just a reminder that you do not need to listen to this episode at all. You can just keep on going with the numbered detailed episodes. But if you would like a refresher or a sneak preview of the themes of the period just before this, don't mind plot spoilers, then this is for you. Now then, last time we heard how Charles surfed up to the beach of kingship on a wave of popularity in the wake of his rejection of Spain and a new enthusiasm for fighting the good Protestant fight with all his might. No, anyway, we heard how Charles's failure to resolve concerns about the authoritarian nature of Stuart government and his enthusiasm for Arminian religious views had flipped his board and buried his relationship under the rollers. How's the surfing metaphor going, by the way? By the end of the 1620s, at the dramatic events of the Parliament of 1629, words had been spoken that could not be unspoken. The concept of treason against the people, for example, had been floated. Charles turned his back then on the Tudor tradition of consensual rule, convinced that a small group of unprincipled malignants had taken Parliament hostage and were determined to usurp his rightful authority for no good reason. He would now listen to new councils, as he called them, and he would rule alone without utensils. Just as a king comes naked and alone into this world, so he would rule, well, not naked, obviously, but alone, without Parliament. It was reported that in March 1629, as he dissolved Parliament, he warned his courtiers grimly that we shall account it presumptuous for any to prescribe at any time unto us for Parliaments. 
Well, in this episode, we are going to hear how that goes for him and how that goes for his people. Now, when the world was happy and Whiggish, this is a period known as the Eleven Years' Tyranny, when England and Wales groaned under the Stuart jackboot until we rose up to put on the flip-flop of liberty. Of course, then fun suckers known as proper historians came along and pointed out it's quite hard to describe it as tyranny when he's hardly Joe Stalin, and many at the time would have seen the king merely exercising his proper prerogatives. So, the proper historians passed a law, and now it is forbidden to speak those words, and we must talk instead of the personal rule of Charles I. But the question remains this. Was it in fact the Eleven Years' Tyranny which led, as night follows day and glory follows English cricket, to revolution? Or was it in fact 11 years of peace and prosperity, or as Edward Hyde would describe it, the greatest calm and fullest measure of felicity that any people in any age had been blessed with to the wonder and envy of all parts of Christendom? And that it was only the Scots and their rebellion and the king's need to raise money to suppress them that opened the door to those malignants once more? Let me know what you think at the end. Tyranny or triumph? First of all, Charles reckoned that revenge is a dish better eaten, at least lukewarm. I mean, after all, there's no point letting it go off. So he immediately pursued those nine vipers in Parliament, those MPs he saw as the parliamentary hostage-takers. The manner in which he did this is hugely instructive. Sui generis, you might say. If this was indeed the Eleven Years' Tyranny, you'd expect those nine MPs to be hauled out of their beds late one evening and never seen again. But Charles does not see himself that way. He was a good king. And although he was entitled by divine right to absolute obedience, the forms were also important. In a few years' time, when things are getting hot, the French ambassador will look around him at what's going on at the chaos, amazed, and remark something along the lines of, Sacre blue gov, back in France, if there'd been all these protests, the streets would be running with the red stuff, and I'm not talking ketchup. He said it in French, though. So, Charles tried to have these nine vipers slung into the cooler by law, and duly arrested them. But they objected that under the petition of right just signed by him in 1628, he had to give them a reason for their imprisonment. Instead of simply slitting their throats before dawn, he brought a prosecution in the courts of common law and he told the judges to do their duty. The judges duly warned him that mm, he didn't have a case, so he slung the vipers into the Tower of London, out of the jurisdiction of common law, and ordered the judges in February 1630 to declare them guilty, or else, since the reason was urgent matters of state, and Charles did not feel he needed to go through the rule that rigmarole of presenting evidence, having a jury, all that sort of ancient rights of the English jazz. Bravely, the judges caved in. The point I'm trying to make is this. Charles was no bloodthirsty beast in the main. He frequently followed the protocols of law, but he was a king above ordinary folks. So the law, he felt, must bend before royal prerogative when he deemed it necessary. Several of the men prosecuted here, Denzel Hollis, William Strode, for example, will get their own back in a few years' time. Now then, personal rule. 
Charles is often considered the architect of the revolution as an inflexible and politically inept sort of ruler, and this may have some truth in it, but he wasn't an idiot. There were some rules Charles decided right from the beginning to which he must adhere. The first was that now that he was a man, he must put aside childish things, which meant no more favourites. There would be no replacement for Buckingham, and he stuck to this for the rest of his life. Charles will prove a man quite capable of listening to advice and even acting on it. However, he shows this level of flexibility only on tactics. Ways to get to an end, means to an end. Never on the principle itself. The ultimate objective is to be decided by the king, his God and his conscience, and most importantly, on his honour. Charles sets much store by his honour. The one time he is forced to go against his honour will haunt him to his death. Everyone must bow before Charles's conscience. Second, though, more practical, money. Money was too tight to mention. He didn't have any, he owed a bundle, and now getting his hands on any more would be much harder because he would not call Parliament. Paris the thought, a plague on both those houses, white horses and all that. Now, what costs money? Mm, war. War costs loads of money. So there can be no war. Within 12 months of closing Parliament, the three kingdoms were at peace with both Spain and France. That does not mean that foreign policy was no longer important, but everything abroad now was bent towards dynastic objectives, no longer religious ones. His sister Elizabeth and her hubby Frederick, winter queen and king, must still be restored to the Palatinate, but it would now be for diplomacy to achieve that. That would be tricky, it has to be said, if effective diplomacy was to speak softly and carry a big stick. Well, the English could speak any way they chose, but everyone knew full well that without money they carried but a small twig. The Venetian ambassador, rather cruelly, reported home that England may be considered as no longer existing in the world, for she will be impotent for good or harm, and will have to attend to domestic affairs and the means to raising money. This is a cruel reality I suspect Charles always failed to grasp. Nonetheless, I have a feeling that Charles thoroughly enjoyed his personal rule. This was how things were meant to be. No messy commoners to get in the way, an oik-free zone. His rule was directed through his privy council, composed of the right kind of people, great men of the realm, PLUs. There were 42 councillors, but a core of 12 regulars and a completely separate Scottish Privy Council. The two factions we have talked about still formed the main fault line at court, the Protestant Patriot faction and the Spanish party, but the Patriots were now in the doldrums with a copy but so blotted as to be unreadable, given their love of Parliament and what had happened there. For most of the personal rule, the Spanish party were in the ascendant. In terms of foreign policy, friendship with Spain seemed the most likely way to get the Palatinate back, because the Spanish had influence with the emperor and they had a notoriously large stick. Not a euphemism. But it's not just about foreign tactics. The Spanish faction were also fully in favour of the king ruling alone. They had recommended that he dissolve Parliament anyway. They fully supported the absolutist view of kingship, religiously, they were often in agreement with Lord and his beauty of holiness stuff, 
Arminian zeitgeist, and indeed a significant number of them were either Catholics or Catholics on the quiet. The Spanish party were therefore of Charles's mind, and as Parliament had found out to its cost, Charles favoured those who were of his mind. I mean, don't we all? As long as they bowed to his priorities, tactics could be discussed until the king made his decision, and then everybody must do what they were told. Although historians dis- disagree a little bit, Charles was generally assiduous as ruler, as far as I can see, taking his duties of governance very seriously. He read his papers extensively, carefully annotated them in longhand, usually giving very clear instructions. He was almost always the ultimate decision maker, and once decided, expected the Privy Council to simply implement. Once again, inflexible on ends, persuadable on means. He frequently attended Privy Councils, even chaired some of them. The very thought of which would have brought his father out in spots and made him retire to a dark room with his favourite damp towel on his head. In general, then, Charles provided clear, decisive leadership, but allowed his councillors very limited real influence. And deep down, he seems to have lacked confidence, and was therefore uncomfortable with debate. He was inclined to equate disagreement with disloyalty. If someone disagreed. He was inclined to believe that they thought him an idiot. This lay behind his fury with Parliament. He could not quite believe that it was possible for people to have a genuine, principled, alternative view of the way to achieving the nation and his best interests. If they argued with the objectives he had laid down, well, they must be up to no good, out for power or personal profit. Now, this attitude was demotivating for advisers and politically very dangerous. Small issues quickly became big issues, became a critical matter of loyalty. One of the reasons I suspect Charles adored the personal rule was that he was able to exercise a lot of control over his life. He craved control, order, decorum. He had been fascinated and awestruck by Europe's grandest, most formal, and most glittery court when he had visited the court of Spain, and the English court became. Every bit as structured as that, if not more so. The Venetian ambassador again noted this: the king observes a rule of great decorum. The nobles do not enter his apartment in confusion as heretofore, but each rank has it its appointed place. The king has also drawn up rules for himself, dividing the day from his very early rising for prayers, exercises, business, eating, and sleeping. His court. Revolved around his family and formal occasions. Certain meals, for example, were taken in full view of the court, with painstaking rules and protocols of who did what and said one not a belch out of place. And his household was enormous, between eighteen hundred and two thousand six hundred people, which made it the seventh or eighth largest community in the kingdom. It cost about two hundred and sixty thousand pounds a year to run, or forty percent of total royal income to sixteen thirty-five. But there was none of the Elizabethan popularism. No pressing of the flesh. No grand public processions. This was a private, closed, structured world. In this bubble, Charles was able to indulge his passion for art collecting, patronising artists, and he was a real expert. Hidden away, he built his own comfortable vision and image of his rule, marked by grand masks, 
organised enthusiastically by Henrietta Maria, many written and decorated by the greatest artists of the day, Ben Jonson and Inigo Jones. Henrietta Maria's masks presented an ideal world of kingship, a king rescuing a grateful people from the threats of chaos and social disorder through his divinely inspired leadership. You can find out more about this world and Charles's relationship with Rubens as well in episode 359, but for here, the thing about this was that Charles no longer had much of a feedback process. There was no parliament in this hermetically sealed world able to bring the rude and jarring voice of the people with their real problems and worries to his attention. One more point to make about this happy, closed, ordered court world. It's said that two's company and three's a crowd, and once the third party of Buckingham had been surgically removed by Tom Felton's scalpel, Henrietta Maria and Charles's marriage blossomed. Children kept appearing, nine of them from 1629 to 1644, five of whom survived infancy. Through the 30s, Charles firmly kept home and the office separate, but he and Henrietta Maria were nonetheless very close, and the health and security of his family was always topmost in his mind. In the troubled time, times of the 1640s, the security of his queen and family would be a major factor in his decision-making, and during that time, Henrietta Maria would become his closest advisor. Now, in the words of the song, man is too tight to mention, ooh, money, 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 and that sort of thing, I think it goes on, great song, catchy chorus. Anyway, here's the scale of the problem. It's not just that there's not enough cash around to carry out that favourite English activity of beating up the French. There's minus money. Royal debt stood at two million quid, which was more than three times annual income in peacetime, which stood at about £600,000 at the time. Since he wasn't calling Parliament, Charles now had to do what was expected of kings, to live of his own, as the phrase went. Taxation, such as that raised by Parliament, was only supposed ever to be in extremis anyway. A war to fight, the security of the realm threatened, that sort of thing. In every other circumstance, the king was supposed to live off the income from his land or the traditional dues owed to him by his nobles. It is worth mentioning something at this point, in letters of fire, if you wouldn't mind. I mean, I know running the country is a team effort and there's no iron team and all of that, but if I can just slip into the blame game here before we accuse Charles of responsibility for all the coming mayhem we might just point out how toweringly unreasonable this is in the more complicated and expensive world of early modern Europe. Monarchs were expected to run the nation, keep everyone safe, hand out goodies, be glorious and all that, with the financial equivalent of the annual takings of the nether wallop annual village fate. They had no truck with this sort of thing in France and Spain, where the national and regional medieval bodies that might have restricted royal power had been closed down or marginalised, and massive prerogative taxes collected centrally, like the Thai or the Gabelle in France. From a later perspective, the failure of Robert Cecil's great contract in 1610 was hugely significant, because that was the last effort to establish a reasonable, reliable income for the crown. As a result, Charles's desperate efforts in the 30s to make ends meet would raise resentment and provide opportunities for protest. Over the decade, in fact, Charles and his Privy Council were to be pretty effective in raising money, 
It's all rather desperate and hand-to-mouth, though, really no way to run an early modern state. And many of the methods he resorted to were deeply unpopular, and some were so old they looked like innovations. And many were, in fact, quite dodgy. So, here's the list. Hi V to episode 361 for the devilish detail and the talk about Lady Mora. First and best would have been the customs dues. Now, obviously, Parliament hadn't voted those, and Charles, of course, respected the customs and traditions of his people and his monarchy, and he kept his hands fully off them. Ha! Not! Good Lord, no. Charles collected away on his customs. And it's not just that merchants didn't like these Jews. I mean, who likes a tax? And they could now piously object that they'd not been approved by Parliament. But also the method of collection by tax farmers could be pretty nasty. Tax farmers paid the king for a patch, and if they could collect more tax than they paid to the king for the right to collect customs there, well, they kept the difference as profit. So whereas these days we pay our taxes with a happy smile, because we know they'd been scrupulously worked out by people called Jack and Maureen in an office in Cardiff, merchants in Charles's day were paying customs they hadn't voted for, and were hounded for to within an inch of their lives by people who looked like grib, grubby, self-interested private citizens, not like Jack and Maureen at all. It then gets hookier and it gets hookier. Sending monopolies to the highest bidder, just for example. Ordinary people hated monopolies. It meant the person who bought the monopoly could charge whatever they like, so prices went up, and choice of product there was none. Parliaments were constantly raising grievances and petitions against these monopolies, but no monarch could bear to keep their hands out of the till. Such an easy way to raise a bit of cash. Similar to that are selling the rights to large-scale projects. The Fen drainage projects are a case in point. The king sells the rights to develop vast swathes of marshy land to contractors if they drain and improve what had been common land. I mean, in the end, it's for the greater good. The fertile fenlands are now the heart of English agriculture. But at the time, thousands of ordinary people were thrown off common land they'd worked for generations and were deprived of their traditional way of life. And they fight tooth and they fight nail and often take the king to court. But Charles overturns many of those cases simply by referring to Star Chamber. Ah, now, the infamous Star Chamber a royal prerogative court, not subject to the rules of common law, deeply influenced by the king, where, according to Charles's principle, law must bend to the will and needs of the king, not to Lady Justice. It's in one of these cases, by the way, that one relatively humble Fenland farmer wins a reputation for standing up for the ordinary folk by leading a legal case against an improvement project in the Fens. Oliver Cromwell by name. It earns him the contemptuous insult from royalists of Lord of the Fens. Again, there's more about the Fens in episode 361. Another source of cash are the array of ancient feudal Jews. Do you remember scootage? Shield tax, a way of paying someone to fight for you. Or the knight's fee, money to be paid on inheritance of your land. Or payment for the use of royal forests, purveyance money to pay for the upkeep of the king's court on the road, courts of wardship. All of these are researched, revived and exploited to the full. Some of them were well known and hated anyway, 
selling wall chips, for example. Others, such as the knight's fee and forest fines, were considered long dead and now look like a new tax. Until they're caught, they appeal to to save them from them, put them right on that one. All this was working financially. Debt was reduced. Charles controlled his expenditure. No one was paying anyone to grab a musket and go and dive to Zine on the continent while costing a fortune, for example. But all this digging around for a few quid down the back of a sofa was very messy. The Venetian ambassador wrote home that all these fines were good for once only, and states are not managed by such devices. They all undoubtedly cost a lot of political capital and caused resentment and anger. But there was no focus, no one big tax to all get together about. It was divide and rule. And without Parliament to act as a lightning rod for grievances, there was no effective way to protest other than small-scale Fenland riots and court cases. So, resentment simmered, but did not achieve critical mass. There were other and even greater causes for resentment, though, and here we must turn briefly to Archbishop William Lord and his religious reforms. There's a long-standing debate about whether or not the English Revolution was really part of the European-wide religious wars, and certainly religion figured every bit as highly in the pantheon of Carolean crimes that would put him up against the wall come the revolution as political ones, particularly with the de facto leader in the House of Commons of that revolution, John Pym. Pym would be as convinced of the absolute infallibility of his religious views as was in Charles, or indeed the Pope. The central importance of religion and the form of religion in people's lives is the hardest thing, I think, to really grasp and feel when looking back at this period. But the English Revolution is incomprehensible without it. William Lord is as much the architect as was Charles of the religious reforms that outraged opinion in England and Wales of the 1630s. Charles had his deeply embedded belief in the sanctity of bishops, but in terms of the details of doctrine, he listened to Lord and Lord's view of what the term Elizabethan church really meant. So there were a blizzard of reforms. Some of them were very subtly introduced and very fundamental, like teaching that people's actions could affect the status of their immortal soul, not, as Calvinists believe, that only God's grace could do that. It was predestined. The Arminian view that rejected the completeness of Calvinist predestination was slowly and steadily enforced in preaching, and many obviously objected. A lot of the issues seem really petty to us now, and fall under the general title of Lord and the Arminians' love of ceremony and formality. So, the kind of vestments ministers wore, whether you should bow at the name of Jesus, the amount of decoration in church, stained glass, images... One in particular was the new demand to place the altar at the east end of the church and separate it and the priest from the mucky old congregation by a good old altar rail. This was not the way of the Elizabethan church, where the altar was usually brought into the body of the church and the congregation gathered around it when they took communion. This will be a big one, and therefore let me turn to John Milton to explain just why people hated it in his own words. The table of communion, now become a table of separation, stands like an exalted platform upon the brow of the choir, fortified with bulwark and barricado. 
to keep off the profane touch of the laity, which is what the prelates desire, that when they have brought us back to popish blindness, we might commit to their disposal the whole management of our salvation. There's so much more in episode 363 about all of this, but let me just emphasise a few points. Firstly, it's very clear that Lord was about all of this because he genuinely wanted to improve the condition of the church in his view. One of his initiatives, for example, was to improve church finances by increasing rents from church land and reclaiming church lands from lay landowners where possible. The objective is surely reasonable. But of course, no one likes to pay more. Secondly, the spread of Arminian and Laudian viewpoints, practices and opinions pervaded throughout the church over time. George Abbott had been a reassuringly Calvinist Archbishop of Canterbury, but he'd been removed by Charles, and then when he died, William Lord was appointed in his stead. Lord made sure all the senior appointments in the church were of his persuasion, and they in turn appointed Arminians beneath them, and corrected approaches amongst the ministers of their diocese with which they disagreed. As their influence spread, anyone coming new into the church could see that the way to preferment lay and cut their jib accordingly. Now many of these practices that are being changed had been part of the church for generations. Suddenly they were being changed, and as with any culture war, there are always many who do not want and saw no reason to change. With the added kicker here, that by making these changes, many feared that a. They were beginning to look a lot like the Catholic Church, or what one Suffolk gent called it, but a dance before popery. And b. That they were being told to adopt practices they believed put into jeopardy something quite important. Their immortal souls. No biggie then. The last point, though, is that not only were altar rails, altars at the East End, ceremony, images and all those things objectionable to many, but also Lord and Charles saw that the changes were carried through, that they were implemented with some vigour, and if ministers or congregations objected, they were punished. The Elizabethan church had always worked by being flexible, encompassing a range of opinions and approaches from Puritan to traditional. Now, only one approach was permissible. Make no mistake, Laudians were every bit as aggressive and demanding as any Puritan, and they had the law of the land on their side and the public institution that became seen as an instrument of religious oppression, the Church High Commission. The High Commission rigorously and energetically prosecuted both ministers and laity, and punishments could be quite severe, from ministers being thrown out of their posts to public humiliation and mutilation. There was a feeling of religious turmoil, change and oppression, and of a church hierarchy gone rogue. Members of the church, bishops in particular, began to be seen as the enemy, and revived the more radical Calvinists, who in their hearts had always thought bishops were anti-scriptural. People who had been grudgingly reconciled to the Elizabethan church over time, but who now felt they'd prefer to separate from it. In addition, Charles's support for Lord meant he was very much associated personally with the policy. Plus, he'd taken quite a shine to some of the Queen's confessors and priests. Charles was more than once seen in happy company 
with the Catholic Father Con, the Queen's confessor. He even opened negotiations with the papal court. His Privy Council contained several Catholics. English Catholics loved the whole Arminian thing and celebrated that every day grows better and better for Catholics, which is all a nice sound to today's ears, but sadly did not make for public confidence at a time of deep religious division and a searing sense of danger on behalf of Protestants from what they saw as the tyranny and aggression of Catholic Europe. And yet here was a king who seemed to view Puritans as a greater threat and with more distaste than he did Catholics. And then there was the Queen, of course, a Catholic, obviously, and with her very public, flamboyant and in-your-face Catholic services at Somerset House in London, which drew big congregations. Not only did Henrietta Maria do nothing at all to try and calm nerves or take the heat out of the situation, she was absolutely delighted to encourage people to convert back to the true church and welcome them when they did. The king himself as a wife recusant, why then could he not be one, some said. The takeaway from this is to go back to the court and country thing we talked about a couple of gallops back. Despite ending the wildness and licence of James's court, Charles and his court still looked like a dodgy, neo-Catholic and untrustworthy champion of Protestantism to the wider Protestant countryside and provinces. Again, there was no real pro focus for protest, but many simply left in what is sometimes called the Great Migration. They left for Ireland, for the Caribbean and for the new colonies in North America. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Now, look, this is one of the areas I just can't cover in detail in At A Gallop, which is a shame because I produced four episodes on the topic, rather good ones, I thought. Episode 364, where I talk very briefly about some of the cultures that were to be disrupted and their futures changed forever by the arrival of the English, albeit the impact on native populations is universally disastrous. And episodes 365 to 7, on the main focuses of colonisation, the Caribbean, Virginia and New England. A couple of things, though. One thing that amazed me was just how different all these areas were in the profile of colonisation. In particular, in the Caribbean and Virginia plantation, agriculture emerges quickly. Although in our period now, indentured labour would form the basis of the colonies, almost from the start, chattel slavery would form part of it and grew fast, particularly in Barbados, and would get progressively more vicious, again, especially in the Caribbean. And the hub of empire is the Caribbean. Trade begins to flow and the markets there for corn feeds the growth of New England, which services that need. New England society is very different, much more religiously oriented, much more egalitarian. Either way, I simply don't have space here. But about 540,000 people emigrated from England during this period in the 1620s and 30s, give or take, I would say. It's important to add. 
About 377,000 of those go to the Americas, but the lion's share of 222,000 goes to the Caribbean. About 116,000 to Virginia, where a very large proportion of them die. About 40,000 to Maryland. 130,000 odd go to the Irish plantations we've already heard about, a large proportion of those being Scots to add to the English and Welsh. Some of them went to practice religion as they wished, others went to build a new life, still more went to make themselves rich. As an historian neatly put it, empire was a haven for the godly, a refuge for the oppressed, a challenge to the adventurous and the last resort of the scoundrel. In Ireland in 1633, very significantly, Charles appointed a new lieutenant-general, one Thomas Wentworth, a Yorkshireman. Mainly known to history from the title he'd assumed in 1639, the Earl of Strafford. To the outside eye and casual observer, it looked as though he'd achieved the impossible in Ireland. A debt and budget deficit at the start of his stint had been turned into a £100,000 contribution to Charles's budget by 1638, as Strafford manipulated the Irish Parliament to fund an army in Ireland of 9,000 men and more money besides. He had been an energetic, talented, efficient and even-handed administrator. Not for nothing would he become feared as Charles's enforcer and hatchet man. When he returned to England, Ireland had been at peace for a couple of decades, was undergoing something of an economic and population boom, unlike elsewhere in the Three Kingdoms, and now it was making a contribution to the budget as well. Charles's cup runneth over. There is a but, gentle listeners, there is a but. Strafford had achieved the impossible in Ireland in another way. He had managed to unite all its component parts in hatred against him. The section of Irish society critical to the success of Stuart rule in Ireland, the Old English, still retained a strong sense of loyalty to the Crown, though rocked by the Reformation, since most, though not all, remained staunchly Catholic. But what really troubled them was their land rights. Unless these had been specifically regranted under English law, they could be taken from them at will and Strafford had repeatedly threatened and done just that. Therefore, they had entered into a bargain. They voted taxation for Strafford and Charles in return for what were called the Graces. These were concessions which assured their land rights and gave them limited religious toleration, but the Graces had in the end only been partially confirmed, and then only by royal prerogative, not by statute. The Old English were outraged and horrified also by Strafford's enrichment of himself while in office. They wanted him gone. Many of the native Irish wanted him gone too. As it happens, there were a number of the native Irish who participated in English government, but some hated the impact of the Reformation and the continued plantations of Ulster and elsewhere were deeply unpopular and destabilising to landowners, although it is worth noting that many native Irish landowners participated fully in the plantations. Meanwhile, not even the Protestant colonists in the plantations were happy. Many of them were radical Protestants, especially the Scots. Strafford, as a good C of E man, 
deeply distrusted them and forced them to swear an oath of allegiance to Charles as governor of the church, which the planters described as the Black Oath. So although Ireland looked peaceful enough, once the firm hand of Strafford was removed, who knew what might happen? Towards the later 1630s, though, some high-profile events began to provide a focus to protest. One of them came from the demands of foreign diplomacy and the absence of that big stick. Charles had no leverage internationally, but continued to believe that he was achieving something in his constant relationship building with Spain, and the Spanish were happy and delighted, in between giggles, to string the lad along. There is a lovely engraving, referred to in Claire Jackson's book Devil Land, of Charles asleep in a chair, while the French and the English fleets are ready for war. But the king cannot be woken from his slumber, because the Spanish ambassador was lulling him to sleep, playing panpipes. It has some truth in it. Part of the problem was this absence of the big stick thing. And if Charles did have a stick worth the name of a preserver, as I think Bill Sykes's stick might be called in Oliver, then it would be the English Navy, once referred to as England's Garland. But England's Garland was a wilted, desiccated old thing now after decades of neglect and corruption under James and there was a new cock on the dungheek of the channel, and its name was the Netherlands. So fearsome had the Dutch Navy become that in 1636, at the Battle of the Downs, Admiral Trump had destroyed a Spanish fleet under English protection while the English Navy stood there helpless, wringing their hands. Rather delightfully, as he sailed off after giving the Spaniards a good drubbing, Trump gave the English fleet a ceremonial cannonade in recognition of the suzerainty of the Downs which you can't help think, had more than a tinge of mockery to it. And the English Channel and the Atlantic approaches were a dung heap, make no mistake. This is a period where Algerian raiders were taking shipping and enslaving people all over Europe and the West Atlantic, including England and Ireland. In between 1609 and 1616 alone, they took 400 English merchantmen, in 1626, the single Cornish village of East Loo lost 80 people to slaving raids and a further 69 ten years later. The Barbary pirates were not alone. Dunkirk in the Spanish Netherlands also was a bed of pirates who took 300 ships in five years, about one-fifth of the entire English merchant fleet. You can find out more about all of this in episode 360. To be fair to him, Charles implemented a lot of reforms and rebuilding under his hard-working Secretary of State, John Cook. Administration was brushed up, corruption was attacked, shipyards opened up again, ships put to sea. The trouble is that many of those ships were simply unsuitable for the kind of demands facing them. What they needed were fast, small, nimble craft capable of chasing down those raiders. What the Navy had were big lumberers, impresso ships. And it's more big lumberers that Charles now wanted. He would build the 1,000-ton Sovereign of the Seas, largest ship on the Channel. And Lord, it was naval bling, that ship, covered with shiny gilt. Now, you can criticise him for that, and I advise you to do so. But big, impressive ships did have one advantage and a real use. They worried the bejesus out of foreign powers such as Spain and France. 
they looked like a big stick. They may tactically have been wrong to deal with the raiders, but they were right for the strategic challenge of forcing England's continental opponents into returning the Palatinate to Elizabeth. And so we come to ship money. Seriously, you need to do yourself a favour and take yourself to episode 362. It is such a great story. What happens in outline, though, is this. So there was an ancient tax called ship money. In times of war and trouble and emergency, it was levied on coastal shires in lieu of their provision of armed ships for defence of the nation. As Charles searched around for money to build ships like the Sovereign of the Seas, he hit on this wizard wheeze. Here's the logic. The navy was there to protect the whole nation, right? So, fair dues, the whole nation should pay for it, however far away from the sea they were. The preparation that went into levying ship money was enormous. An army of commissioners armed with a full text and trained up to go around all the towns and villages of England and levy this tax on its citizens. The reaction from those citizens, though, was one of confusion and general eye-rolling in the best tradition of English queuing. This was unfair, they said. There was no war and so no justification for this tax nor had it ever been levied before on in inland counties, and Parliament had not approved it. It was therefore illegal thricefold. There was in fact a lot of compliance. The tax was successful for three years, collecting over £200,000 a year, but the chorus of protests against assessments swamped the Privy Council. In response to this, Charles summoned the 12 judges of the King's Bench, and he ordered them to rule whether or not he had the right to tax whenever he felt there was sufficient need. He sat on all 12 judges, threatened them with expulsion if they didn't get the right answer, and back then the king could indeed rem remove judges at will, at his pleasure, as it was described. No separation between executive and judiciary here. Duly, Charles got the right answer from his judges. Of course, sire. The king could tax when he saw danger threatened, relying only on his judgment about when danger threatened. There is no wedge end thinner than this. This was effectively a green light for English absolutism and the end of the need to call Parliament. Many of the judges deeply regretted their compliance and they wanted a second chance. Well, they were to get that chance, actually courtesy of Charles himself and an ordinary Buckinghamshire squire called John Hamden. Charles wanted a showdown to destroy resistance and objections to the tax and a group of reformers wanted exactly the same thing at the same time to provide a focus for the protests, to force Charles to call a parliament so that there they could properly discuss their grievances with him about the rights and liberties of the English over which Charles was riding roughshod and the abuse, as they saw it, of his religious policy. Excluded from the King's councils, these were grand men like Robert Rich, the Earl of Warwick, and there were also the rather ordinary sort like John Pym. Together they sought to force a new Parliament so they could be heard. It was John Hamden, well-connected and supported by this group of reformers, who stood up to challenge the powers of the king. He refused to pay his ship money assessment. Interestingly, he paid most of it, but just held one pound back. 
and it was quite clear that therefore this was symbolic. Hamden was signifying his patriotism and willingness to contribute money, but objecting to the tax in this form without consent. Charles decided that this relatively humble Hamden was vulnerable. He could be browbeaten and crushed, and so he accepted the challenge, and had Hamden taken to court. The ship money case became a cause célèbre then and for ever after. You can see Hamden's statue should you ever find yourself in Aylesbury, just for example. It was discussed in newsletters, broadsheets, libels, ballads. St Paul's Walk rang with all the latest moves. The courtroom was rammed. The Venetian ambassador was stunned by Charles's tactics. What on earth was the man doing? Why not just take the bloke down a dark alley, give him the benefit of as big a preserver as you could lay your hands on, and send him to the bottom of some river with stone shoes on? But once more, Charles was an odd tyrant. He fully believed these were his proper rights. He was acting in his people's interests, and the courts would prove it for him. Well, to cut a long story short, as I sadly must, this dramatic case was both won and lost by Charles. Seven of the twelve judges ruled in his favour. John Hamden was forced to cough up. But five of those judges. Five of the same ones who had caved in before, five of them refused to bow before the king's majesty. They ruled against the king, and they did so in some ringing tones. One declared in his judgment that the subjects of England are free men, not slaves. Another declared it illegal without a parliamentary approval, and wept that this kingdom, which hath flourished by parliaments, should now forget her frequent kind of government. By Parliament. In his later history of the rebellion, Edward Hyde, Earl of Clarendon, saw the ship money case of 1637 as a turning point. People still paid the 1638 tax, but disputes to the Privy Council soared, and by 1639 the receipts plummeted. People began to believe the tax was political and not legal, and that they were bound in conscience not to submit. There were further outrages against public opinion, which drove the heat of public fury upwards to force steam screaming from the kettle of politics in 1637. In June, in London, sympathetic crowds gathered in large numbers to see an outspoken Puritan called William Prynne, who had protested furiously against the Laudian reforms. They saw him and two other companions publicly. Branded and brutally maimed by order of the Church High Commission for religious practices, a majority of Londoners heartily agreed with. They heard Prynne shout defiantly that they should stand firm for the cause of God and His true religion. From Ireland, as Strafford heard about the crowd's enthusiastic support and sympathy for Prynne and their open defiance of the High Commission, their refusal to be cowed, he foresaw trouble. For when a prince loseth the force and example of his punishments, he loseth withal the greatest part of his dominion. In 1638, London followed the case of John Lilburn, who defied the king's prerogative court of Star Chamber by writing in criticism of the bishops, and the crowds gathered to see him stripped to the waist and tied to the back of a cart, whipped for th two miles through the streets. 
the writer Lucy Hutchinson recorded her horror that her fellow Puritans were now tormented in the bishop's courts, fined, whipped, pilloried, imprisoned, and suffered to enjoy no rest, so that death was better than life to them. In 1638, then, after nine years of personal rule, England was at peace. There were no violent riots or only local specific ones, no plots to overturn the king or the government of the realm. Ship money was still coming in. The royal court was a model of order and grandeur. And it is important to note, though I'm a little late in doing this, I have to say, that there were many who felt the king was doing nothing that was not his right. Arminian clergy enthusiastically supported the absolute and divine right of kings, probably one of the reasons Charles liked them so much. Many of the laity believed that right along with them. Some even rather liked the return of church ceremony. For them, and maybe most, the king was the keystone of social order and stability and was doing none but his right. Revolution seemed a long way away. Nonetheless, for many others, something was broken. Pretty much none of them would have denied the king's rights and importance as the head of society that ordered all the limbs of that body of a healthy commonwealth. But this king seemed to have forgotten the duties of that role. He was supposed to defend the true religion, and yet it seemed to them he had indeed innovated in religion and had changed the religion of good Queen Bess. He was supposed to rule according to the laws and customs of the land, and yet he had taxed against the customs of the land and used prerogative courts to bypass the common law. And he had refused to consult with his people to hear their grievances through their representatives in Parliament. Charles seemed to hold England in an iron grip. What could happen to break that grip to make him listen Well, we will see how iron that grip is in the face of the crisis in the next History of England at a Gallop, or by returning to the detail with with episode 369, if you would prefer, and events in Scotland that would challenge the King's nicely ordered life. Before I leave you, let me remind you of the core episodes, but also that you can listen to all of my podcasts free of adverts and access over 100 hours of extra of my shedcasts by becoming a member at thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Also, you would thereby support my work and make me happy, which is not everything, but it's not nothing. That's thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Until next time then, thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks for your comments. Good luck and have a great week. new glasses or want a fresh new style warby parker has you covered glasses start at just 95 bucks including anti-reflective scratch resistant prescription lenses that block 100 of uv rays every frame's designed in-house with a huge selection of styles for every face shape and with warby parker's free home try-on program you can order five pairs to try at home for free shipping is free both ways too go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free warbyparker.com slash covered why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science 
Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.